0: Well, we're going to finish today the first segment of Revelation. Remember, we started in chapter 1, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So we've been doing the who is and was part of the book with these seven churches, churches that actually existed at the time but also are being instructed out of what they have done so that they can be set up to do in the future what God wants them to do, what Jesus wants them to do. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So we started this whole thing with thrones and rulers. Today, we're going to end with thrones and rulers, and then when we start the what is to come part, we're going to open the scene in the throne room of Jesus. It's quite fascinating. There's over 40 mentions of just the word throne in Revelation. It inspired me to do some research on a thing I've been hearing a lot about. There's a TV show called Game of Thrones that's become very popular. Based on what I haven't watched it, based on what I've read about it, it apparently is inspired by the War of Roses, which was an English civil war that took place for about 30 years. And I'll tell you, I have seen King Richard III, which is the fourth of Shakespeare's tetrarchy about English history that starts with one of the Henrys and ends with King Richard and is during the period of the War of Roses. It includes the two princes in the tower that were killed, the two young princes. Maybe you've heard about that. Uh, We've been to Warwick, the castle of Earl of Warwick, who was the kingmaker and switched sides and was kind of the master of intrigue during the War of Roses. I've read the Black Arrow, which is set during the time of the War of Roses. And I still can't keep straight all the things going on during that period. Every time, every time I read it, it's like, yeah, I remember something about that. It's so, so complex, so, many, so much intrigue. And apparently this, this Game of Thrones uh, series has over 250 characters. And one of the reasons people like it is because it's so complex and so intriguing. And from what I understand, from what I've read, it's set in kind of a, a middle-earth sort of a place. It's a, it's a very familiar but different world. Well, why, why are we so fascinated with this? Why have there been four Shakespeare plays and all these novels and all these film series inspired by a civil war? with intrigue and the question of who's going to get the throne? Well, it's because it's a little glimpse of what's really going on. What's really going on is there's a grand drama happening. And the question is, who's going to get the throne? Remember in Pergamos, the place where Satan's throne is? Remember that? Because Satan is still on the throne, even though he's been deposed... He's a lame duck. He's still sitting on the throne. And even though Jesus is the king of all the kings of the earth, he hasn't imposed his will yet. But it's coming. And the intrigue is happening. And guess who's part of the plot? Us. We're all part of the plot. We can watch these fantasy things, perhaps. We can read about them. They're interesting. But what Revelation is inviting us to do is play our role. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The last two churches of what is, what was, and what is. We'll start Revelation 3 verse 7. I'm going to go ahead and read both churches and then go through and comment on them. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. He who has the key of David... He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works, see. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel or messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because... You are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It was very interesting, these two letters side by side. These would represent the last two eras in the historical model. The Philadelphia church, the period of the great mission endeavor that spread over the whole earth. I proposed it from 1727 to 1919. And in this letter... There's no, but I have this against you. And in the Laodicean letter, that's the modern era, the era of materialism, dialectical materialism, Marxism is the spirit of our age. And in that letter, there's no commendation. So you have one with no chastisement, one with no commendation. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Phila is from philos, love. Adelphus is brother. And he says, these things, says he's holy, who's true. He who has the key of David and opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's opens. This is actually a quote of a verse from Psalms. If you're interested, it is... Oh, sorry, not Psalm, Isaiah. Isaiah 22, 22, if you're interested. And so he quotes this psalm and says, this is speaking about me. I'm the one, Jesus, who has the key of David. And if I open something, nobody's going to shut it. And if I shut something, nobody's going to open it. And you know what I've done in verse 8? I know your works. I opened a door. And when I open a door, what happens? No one shuts it. I opened a door. For you have a little strength... Now this is very interesting to me. You have a little strength. This word strength is the Greek word dynamis. We get our word dynamic from it. Or dynamo, dynamite. It's the idea of power. In Mark 5, a lady touches Jesus and it says he felt some power flow out from him. That's dynamis. In Acts 1, the Holy Spirit came to give us power. So Jesus says, all authority is given to me. That's a different word. So I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for power. So the infilling of the Spirit gives us power. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, my strength is perfected in weakness. Strength is the same root word. My power to do things, my power to impact others is perfected in weakness. So, why does he say a little strength? It seems to me it can't be a little Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our power, so that doesn't make sense to me. And he says, I've opened a door, so if he's opening a door, nobody can shut it. That's not a little power. Why a little power? Well, perhaps it's because of the way it's used here in Matthew twenty six sixty four. If you want to turn there, you can. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, all authority is given. Authority is different but it seems there's an overlap here and power can also mean the position, the role the capabilities the opportunity that you have to do something and I think that's what he's talking about here you have a little opportunity you have a role that I've assigned you see I opened this door it doesn't say he opened every door it says I've opened a door for you nobody's going to shut that door but you know what A door is just an opening, isn't it? We have to walk through it. And he gave us a little opportunity. So the question is, are we going to walk through it? And this again reminds me of the Moravians. This group that I used to illustrate this era in the historical model. The Moravians were just a handful of people. started with two guys that were being persecuted in Bohemia that came down to... Count Zinzendorf, who was in the court of the Holy Roman Empire, the the successor to Rome. Rome was the one of whom he says, the throne of Satan is there in Pergamos. And these two guys came down and said, hey, can we stay on your land? We're being persecuted. And Count Zinzendorf had committed his life to helping the poor, to following the edicts, Of Jesus. His seminal moment was this picture of Jesus with a caption that said, I've done this for you, what have you done for me? And he said, I'm going to commit myself to do things for Jesus who died for me. And so he said yes. And it ended up with a total of 300 people and they became his flock and he discipled these people. Now these people had already exhibited many of the things we've seen in these letters. They had stood for truth. Their founder, John Huss, was burned at the stake for wanting to translate the Bible from Latin into the common language. So his crime was wanting to open the scriptures to people, to open the truth to people, and not have it held by a power group that could tell people, I know the language, you don't, so I'll tell you what the Bible says, which of course gives them immense power. And John Huss wanted that power to be in the hands of the people, so they killed him for it. And they had followed him that was back in the 1300s, and here we are in the 1700s. so they had kept the truth. But interestingly enough, even though they had kept the truth like the Smyrna Church, you know just, just hold in there against persecution, when they came down to Count Zinzidorf, they no longer had persecution, now they started having factions. And the big revival started when they learned to love one another. Remember the Ephesians church? They had truth, they had stood on truth, but they had forgotten love. Well, in 1727, they learned to love one another. And that year, a prayer revival, a 24-hour prayer revival, only 300 people. A 24-hour prayer revival that lasted 100 years began that year because they learned to love one another. So out of their persecution where they learned to embrace death and then adding love came their willingness to go on missions. 70 of the 300 went on missions which was something that wasn't done in that era. They started with the Caribbean slaves. Some of them actually lived the life of a slave in order to create that opportunity. And That little window, just a handful of people going, earning their own living as they went, created this massive movement. The Wesleys became the Wesleys because they ran into some Moravians on the ship that were unafraid to die. And they said, you've got something we don't have. And that's what founded Methodism, which swept America. A little window So faithful in little things, a little opportunity, becomes really big things. Little things become big things. See, I open this door. If you will walk through this little opportunity, I will bless it. You've kept my word, not denied my name. Just do what I ask you to do in the opportunity that I have given you. It will seem little in the eyes of people, whatever it is I've given you to do. The people you connect with, the interactions you have, the responsibilities you have, whatever those are, they're small in the eyes of the world. They're not small in the eyes of Jesus. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. So something's going on here with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are also doing Satan's will. Not that unusual. The religious leaders are the ones that killed Jesus. It seems that having power is a corrupting thing. We saw Balaam, who had the power of the truth, but he also wanted the world. Ended up death. We saw Jezebel, who wanted to be called a prophetess. Who wanted, who wanted the religious authority, but didn't want anything to do with God. Ended up being eaten by dogs. Well, what happens to these religious leaders is they end up licking the feet of the Philadelphians. In heaven. Get that picture? Did it ever occur to you that in heaven, there will be people who have to publicly admit that they are wrong? See, it's not, it's not the floaty place. It's the place where everything's resolved. Let's just take a look at Revelation 6.10. Let's start in 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. This is in the heaven, in the throne room. The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony... Which they held. And they cried with a loud voice in heaven, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We are tired of waiting for justice. We are aware of time, and it has been a long time, and we want these people to come and lick our feet. Because they killed us, why aren't you bringing justice? And Jesus says, "Oh no, we don't do that in heaven. We have forgiven everybody. It will all..." No, he doesn't say that. In verse eleven, then a white robe was given to each of them, and they was said, "Just wait a little longer. That day will come. Justice will prevail." See, the Bible doesn't say there is no vengeance. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. All God is telling us is, we're not God. He's not telling us that the design He gave us to retaliate is the wrong impulse. He's telling us that the desire to retaliate is the impulse to do the wrong role at the wrong time. Because justice built into us, it's built into the universe and he will execute it and part of what people are going to have to do is apologize to the people they've abused in heaven I'm just telling you that's going to be a good day if you happen to be on the foot licking side, on the recipient side now, do I have any will I do any foot licking? it's very possible it's very conceivable that that will be the case. Because there's this fire thing that we all have to go through, right? The print, there's principles are there for all of us. And know that I have loved you. See, I want you to know and understand that I was on your side all along. I want you to know and understand that you are mine. And when this vengeance happens... I was for you. I want you to see it firsthand. Verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now this is interesting. Because what this says is, Because you have embraced trials, I will save you trials. But this is just a principle in the Bible. If we will embrace the trials that God gives us here, it prevents us from having trials later. And the trials now are much, much less severe with incredibly greater upside potential than trials later. You kind of see this in your own life. You know, it's never too late to start being healthy. It's never too late. But, you know, if you wait until you have type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and your feet are gone numb and you're crooked and your muscle tone is gone and you can't hear, you know, etc., etc. If you wait until then... There's only so much recovery you can get, right? It's never too late, you can get significant recovery. But if you kind of start at the beginning that way and say, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to eat right, I'm going to exercise and things like that, that compounds. That doesn't mean you won't still get old. It does mean that the trials later will be far less than they would otherwise be. But you know what? Eating right, exercising, all those things, it's a pain in the neck. It's a pain a lot of places, not just in the neck. <laughs> right? it's, not, it's not that fun of a thing to do. It's kind of a trial. But this is just kind of the way life works. If, if, if you invest over time, if you invest early, it pays huge dividends. Well, we're going to see that in spades in these two letters. I will keep you from the hour of trial. This word persevere, perseverance is a huge, a huge concept in the Bible. It tends to get applied by some branches of Christianity as a precondition to going to heaven. And the, the basic argument is if you persevere, then either you prove that your choice of being born was valid... Or you prove that God made a good choice before the ages of the earth to predestine you to be born. But you have to prove that God... You have to, by good choices, prove that God... or cause God to have chosen you or something like that. God who chooses on his own behalf will choose because you did. The logic breaks down pretty early. But that's the basic idea. It's connected with birth. You know what? The analogy is pretty weak there, isn't it? How many babies do you know have persevered? Well, I guess you could say they made it nine months in the womb. But did that involve a lot of will on their part? I mean, were they making a choice to persevere? Were they making a deliberate action to persevere? I don't think so. Anybody here remember being in the womb? I I just, it's kind of escaped me. I just don't remember much about it. it. Uh, See, I don't think that's it. What perseverance is such a big deal because it determines who we become. Not who we are, but who we become. Birth is a free gift. It doesn't have anything to do with perseverance. Growing up has everything to do with perseverance. Let's just look at some perseverance verses. This same word, hyper. Hypomone, hyponym, help me, Brandon. H y p o m o n e. Hypomone, Hi-pomone. Hi-pomone. very good. Thank you. Uh, that sounds right. Hypomone. It's kind of like sounds like anemone. I can't say that word either. So Romans two seven. We'll start in uh, five. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. You know, this judgment is a big part of what Revelation is about. This day where Jesus will judge each person. And here's who gets eternal life. To those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That word patient there is hypom... Can you help me? Hypomony, thank you. Hypomony. Patient. Enduring. Patient continuance. You keep on doing. Good. Now, you know the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished? That phrase is, I've found to be fairly true. If you do good deeds, people will ask you to do more good deeds. If you do good deeds, you will get criticized for not doing good deeds to other people. You did a good deed for this person, why won't you do a good deed for that person? You gave money to them, why won't you give money to me? You came to their event, why won't you come to my event? If you just stay off the lists, nobody knows about you. They don't ask anything, right? Well, that's not what God asks us to do. He says, keep on persevering and doing good. Why? Because that's how you seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, we're not used to that in Christianity. We tend to think, well, we're not supposed to seek for glory. That's for other people. Just seek for God's glory. We are asked to seek for God's glory. And we're not supposed to want to be honored. We're supposed to defer to others' humility. Well, that's true too. But this is all before God. If you go before God and you say, I really don't care what you think of me. God says, hey, I want to confess you before my Father. No, No, I don't care what He thinks. No, I don't do that. All that matters here is what I think of what I've done for you. You think that'd go over really well? I don't think so. What God is saying is, I want you to keep on doing good so that when you come before me, God, I will say, I liked what you did. So that's the idea here. Let's live for what God thinks. Uh, We can go on, those who are self-seeking. See, to be self-seeking is to say, I will just live for me. As long as I'm happy, it's okay. And if you'll listen carefully to people, there's a lot of religious ease that's all wrapped in all that really matters is what I think of myself. But no, if we're self-seeking and do not obey the truth. See, obedience is what leads to well-doneness. And if we obey self and say, no, no, all that matters is me, then we will not obey the truth, but we'll obey unrighteousness, which is what we generate on our own. Here's what we get, indignation. You know, I gave you this opportunity, and you didn't... I opened this door for you and you didn't walk through it. Why? Tell me why. I gave you all these gifts. You squandered them. Tell me why. Indignation. Wrath. I gave gave you all this opportunity and you, you met. Why? Just tell me why. See, God is a consuming fire. Remember the guy with the brass feet and the eyes that are blazing and the face that causes the whole heaven and earth to melt? That's who we're going to be standing before. On every soul who does evil. So, there's obviously going to be a difference between believers and unbelievers in terms of what this judgment's going to do, but fire is fire. And fire burns up unrighteousness. Let's look at another perseverance verse. Hebrews 12, 1, this same word, hypon- hypomony, is in there. Sounds like homony. I like homony. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our face, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Endured. That's it. Patient. Endurance. Well, what did he get? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what he got. That was his reward. That was the joy set before him. Sometimes people say the joy is us. And that is supportable in the scripture. In this verse, the joy is to get the authority that he got from his father. And while they're there, while we're there, let's just look over to the church of Laodicea. Verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. See, the reason we're fascinated with thrones is because that's who determines kind of what happens. Authority. And remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission. All authority is given to me. I'm giving it to you to go teach others. And if you will do as I ask, patiently continue to teach, whether people listen or not. If you will do that, I'm going to give you the same thing I got to sit with me on my throne. You're going to be part of my court. It's interesting, Count Zinzendorf was part of the Holy Roman Empire court. And he set that aside, I'll bet you, he's going to get something way better. I'm very confident of it. He is one of my heroes. One of the guys I look at and say, that's who I want to be like, in terms of an earthly example. And I will keep you from the trial. It's interesting that if we look at this word trial, it's the same word as in James 1. And the word Hapomene is in James 1. Count it all joy, brethren, when you count us various trials, because it produces endurance. Isn't that interesting? Same thing. This whole thing is wrapped all through the Scripture, this idea of persevering, of overcoming trials, so that it perfects our faith. Galatians six nine says... Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap, if we do not lose heart. It's over and over again. And if we will persevere in doing the role God's given us, going through the door, even though it's small, even though it's little, elevation to the throne of the universe. That's pretty mind-boggling. Behold, I'm coming quickly, verse 11. Hold fast, what you have, this term hold fast is like clutching, like hold grip. You know, it's, it's pretty common in movies for somebody, for there to be a scene where somebody's just holding on to the edge of the building or they're just holding on to the tree. And the question is, can they hold on? That's where the tension comes from, the drama. Can they hold? That's the idea here. Just hold on. Keep clutching what you have, that no one may take your crown. It's very interesting that rewards are generally uh, already pre- prescribed for us. The victory's already been won. The question is, will we squander it? There's a very interesting passage in 2 John, verse 7. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look for yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but we may receive a full reward. See, these crowns are laid up for us, but if we don't persevere, we can lose them. Or we can lose a part of them, a full reward. We can get a partial reward. Behold, I'm coming. My reward is in my hand, Jesus says. He wants us to have the life that gives us the full blessing in the future. See, this life of living by faith, we can't reproduce it. We never get another chance to live by faith. I'm sure there will be great opportunities to grow as people by sight, but never by faith. And he doesn't want us to squander the opportunity. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, we will see later in the and is to come part that there is no physical temple in the new earth. The temple is God himself. So how do you become a pillar in something that doesn't exist? I think it's an analogy that says, we're going to be so close to Jesus that it's as though we're a pillar in a building. And how does that happen? I think it happens because when you are living by faith, you get to know Jesus in a way that doesn't happen otherwise. And He doesn't want us to miss that. I will write on Him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. I'll write on Him my new name. Now, I don't know if this is a... An apologetic for tattoos. But somehow the name's going to get on there. He who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. Now, this period of the Laodiceans is something that is very simple. They're not doing good. And he uses this analogy of lukewarmness. And he says, You're not cold or hot. Now, some people say, that Laodicea had mineral springs like you would go there for healing. They were hot. And it had cold springs coming out of the mountains where you could drink the cool water. And both are useful. And if you mixed them together, it wasn't useful. It wasn't anything you could drink and it wasn't anything you could get healed by. And so if you put that in your mouth, you just spew it out. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps because of the spewing out, it's that people like cold beverages and they like hot beverages, but they don't really ever... Order lukewarm for the most part. Whatever it is, though, it's really clear that Jesus doesn't like it. He spits it out. And here's what lukewarm is. It's saying, I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That's what lukewarmness is. I'm okay on my own. Don't need God's approval. Don't need a reward from God. I'm fine on my own. Don't need other people. Don't need church. Don't need the Bible. I can, I can go my own way. Don't need provision. I've got my own material comfort. And that's the spirit of our age. Our age seeks comfort. It seeks independence. Not needing anyone else. The reality is when we have fine clothes and we have a fine house and we have few material needs and we depend on those things, what we end up is lonely and miserable and wretched and poor. Uh, there's a great book called The Fourth Great Awakening by a guy named Fogel, and he claims that we're still in a fourth awakening started with the Jesus movement and he says every time we've had one of these awakenings there's been huge material prosperity that's come out of it the hospital movement people get well and then and then uh, entrepreneurship and people get out of poverty it's, it's i think it's very insightful and he says that our material And he's talking about America now, the Western world. They've gotten so good that you can't really get any better. I mean, our poor people are struggling with eating too much. That's unprecedented in the history of humanity. So what's lacking is spiritual blessing, he says. You know, I think he's right. That's our big deficiency in this age. Well, how do we do that? I count you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. There's that fire again. How do you get that? That you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your not eyes with eye salve. Apparently Laodicea was a place where people would go to the mineral baths and, get, and for eye salve. That you may see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. See, Laodicea is doing nothing good. Does Jesus love them? Of course he does. They're a church. He wants them to overcome. And this is what He does with people. He loves. He rebukes and chastens. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice, hey, let me in. Let me in. Let me in. Church. Let me in. Believer. You are living a lonely, independent life. If you will let me in, we will now fellowship. And we will dine together. Because in fact, the way to get riches is to listen, to hear. So James 1 has this same basic idea. We get trials that produces endurance. We have temptations, not because of the trials, but because of our own passions. And the way we overcome these passions that will eventually produce sin and death if we don't set them aside is to first learn to listen to other people, be swift to hear, slow to speak. And that gives us the skill to lay aside wickedness and overflow of evil and receive with meekness the implanted word. When we learn to listen to others to see their perspective, we learn to listen to God and see His perspective. And when we do, we're inviting Him in. And when we invite Him in, we get true riches, as much gold as we want. How much gold do we want? Well, get all that you have. Get all you want. Buy all you like. You can get all you want just by listening to me to him who overcomes. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my father with my father on his throne. Jesus has already done this. he endured, he persevered. he lived. The most, I'm sorry, he was the only person capable of living an independent life and he lived a perfectly dependent life. I can of myself do nothing, he said. I only do that which the Father tells me. Was that because he was only capable of doing that? No, it was because he left his home in heaven, which he did not consider a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a bondservant, And became like us and learned obedience even to death on the cross that his name might be elevated above every name. And Philippians tells us, have that mind. Have the same mind that wants to say, God, I'll lay down whatever it is I possess. I'll give it to you to do as you ask me to do, whatever that door is that you open for me. And I will walk through it and I will endure it daily. And Jesus says, if you do that, then you've done what I've done. And I will do for you what God did for me. If you learn obedience, even to death, dying to all your own desires, if you'll do that, then you will overcome. And we'll end with, he who has an ear, let him hear. What does hearing give us? Untold riches. Untold riches. As much gold as you want. What is the very simple theme of Revelation? I want you to read, hear, do. Read, hear, do. Why? Lay aside overflow of wickedness. Yes, sir. I hadn't seen this before, but when you were talking about the open door in Philadelphia. So yes. The door that God has opened, or Jesus is opening, he's wanting them to work walk through it. In Laodicea, there's a closed door that he's not yes. waiting for us to open. That's an outstanding point. So, what he's saying is, we've got an open door in, in the faithful church that they're walking through, and in Laodicea, they have a closed door on their heart. And Jesus is saying, open up and let me in. And it's interesting because if, if they open up and let him in, what do you think he'll do next? Probably open a door for them, right? So that they can go out and serve. Great insight. Any other any other comments as we close this what, what was and what is part? Fascinating, isn't it? So let me give you a little prequel, a little teaser. Next time we'll start the what is to come. Listen to this. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. There's the door again, Andrew. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with saying, come up here and I'll show you the things which must take place after this. What was and is, and now we're going to go to what will be. And we'll find out about thrones and dominions and authorities and kings and crowns and white garments and armies. And we'll be right in the middle of it all. Uh, God, thank you for these doors I pray that we will open the door to our heart and that we will walk through the doors of opportunity. I pray that you'll give us the wisdom to hear so we can become unimaginably rich and that we'll seek true riches. Set aside all these other things that are nothing but distractions. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us be useful. That we'll take our little strength and apply it faithfully so that we can take full advantage of this amazing opportunity you've given us to know you by faith. I pray, Lord, that we will repent. You've It's so encouraging. You gave every one of these guys, no matter how bad they were, a, a chance for a fresh start. And I pray that we would take advantage of that. You told us the last will be first. So, help us start today. and. Live faithfully from this day on. In Jesus' name, amen.